You're listening to Music Tectonics. Welcome back to Music Tectonics, where we dive beneath the surface to see what's happening with technology in the music industry. I'm your host, Dimitri Vitsa, the founder and CEO of Rock, Paper, Scissors, a PR firm that specializes in music and tech and music tech. Today, we're going to talk about music tech acquisitions. And to do that, I would like to welcome our guest today, Vicky Nauman, a music tech strategy consultant based out of Los Angeles and whose company is called Cross Border Works. How are you doing today, Vicky? I'm great. I have a nice rainy day in LA, so um, so all is well. Yeah. Before starting her consulting business, Vicky was the U.S. president of Seven Digital, the company that provides music licensing white label services to apps and brands and more. She did a stint with Sonos before smart speakers were everywhere, and her own practice has advised companies ranging from Mixcloud, Spotify, Downtown Music, Bose, Sound Exchange, among others. So Vicky, I thought you'd be the perfect person to dive into recent and historic music technology acquisitions, of which there have been some super interesting ones in the past year. So let's just dive in and I'll ask you, what have been some of the most eye-catching acquisitions in music tech from your perspective? Well, I, I often look at these things as on, on a spectrum. On, on one end, there's um, companies that are trying to augment their teams and they just want to do an acquire to those that that acquire a technology or a company, and it really adds to their portfolio. Um, uh, uh, and and my passion is always the latter of the two because um, I look at things like when the Echo Nest was acquired by Spotify and the technology yeah. that the Echo Nest had created to do personalized playlists and really using a lot of advanced technology that wrapped around music to make it um, to make it algorithmically friendly. Um, and how that fed into Spotify's platform. I think that was really transformative. Um, I also think that one that um, one that hasn't really risen to probably as many people's minds is is CD Baby and AdRev, because CD Baby is so much of a DIY uh, musician's um, you know platform and company and then adding an advertising and a claiming system onto that just completes this full cycle. Um, another that I think was also really interesting that gets more into the, the guts and, the, and the, the right side of the business is when SoundExchange acquired CMRRA in Canada, which is a mechanical rights administrative company. Mm -hmm. And that opened up SoundExchange, who had you know, label and artist data, it opened Sound Exchange up to Sound Exchange Works, which is which also has the publishing side of the business. Well, wow, yeah. I mean, those are interesting because all of those are so different. Uh, each one of those uh, examples that you gave, you've got um, Echo Nest with kind of like increasing some of the some of the technical abilities around. I assume it ended up being around kind of music discovery, music recommendation, um, CD Baby and AdRev, uh, AdRev uh, around the idea of really building out additional revenue streams for um, CD Baby, possibly targeting a different potential uh customer base as well there. And then, you know, I think similar to the, to the sound exchange one, one you mentioned, there's also this, the CSAC um, acquisition of Harry mm. Fox. Yeah. We have these really interesting, like pretty, pretty uh, long-term music industry uh, organizations and companies realizing that there's some synergy between different types of rights that were kind of managed in separate silos um, that are now, 
um, you know, it makes sense to see where the crossover is. And if you're really good at managing data, collecting money, paying money out, there's probably synergies there as well. Absolutely. And I think that, uh, you know, the, the pace at which technology is changing and the pace at which the demands on everyone who's doing anything around music rights, um, you, you, you know, you almost have to acquire or really, really build massive teams and infrastructure to keep pace with it and be competitive. So, um, so I think putting some of these companies that together that in previous worlds might have been, uh, you know, in completely different worlds, you know, some, you know, there's a performing rights and there's mechanical rights, never the twain shall meet. Well, yes. And in fact, they are now same thing with, you know, it, it would have, it used to have been heresy to think of having sound recording rights and publishing rights under the same roof, but that's exactly what uh, sound exchange and CMRA have now and we're I, I think all of these things are signs that the industry is really changing and a lot of the things that in the past might have been uh, firewalls for business reasons now are almost necessities to tear those down and put different parts of the industry together because the lines are blurring so much right and it's interesting that as you see the shift in what types of um, formats music is getting consumed in that those rights that made sense to be split out for different reasons. Um, it's like Humpty Dumpty. It's got to be put back together again. And so sometimes you see those, see those partnerships as a result of that. You know, there was a moment of acquisitions probably, uh, six, six ish years ago. I think uh, maybe a little bit, yeah, around then, maybe a little bit longer when the orchard and there was all the con consolidation, the first round of consolidation they did around, um, aggregators and distributors so iota and iris and then more mm -hmm. recently fine tune that but that's you know that's like one pattern the kind of consolidation where you're like okay i'm gonna i'm gonna buy up my competitors and build something bigger something stronger instead of competing with them so that's kind of an interesting category and then i never really knew uh, maybe around that same I, I kind of block in the same era when youtube bought band page and i never really knew how to interpret hmm. what that was about Right, right. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I, um, I think that, you know, what I always look at, what are, what are, you know, what problems did some of these startups solve that really made them attractive for an acquisition? And I think with Bandpage, you know, they took this completely disparate collection of merch and more, um, you know, kind of specialty items that were related to bands and they organized it and they created some intelligence around that. I don't know whether or not that has had life within, um, within the YouTube environment or if it ended up just being that the team was useful and there were parts of parts of the technology and the relationships. But, um, but I think that, you know, having, having some, some startup makes sense out of, a part of the industry that's very chaotic and noisy, that intelligence just right there is sometimes enough for a company to acquire them, keep the founders on for a few years, transfer the knowledge, and then everybody goes off their separate ways. And we, I definitely know there are some some of the the band page folks that came over that are still at YouTube as well. Not, maybe not the founder, but um, so there is that that piece where it's almost like, well, maybe there's a little bit of heat and energy from whatever 
a company is offering the service and how to integrate it. But at the same time, you get that aqua hire component as well. Exactly. Um, another one from the, that kind of era of acquisitions was Beats acquiring Topspin. And then mm. Apple, <laughs> immediately after that, Apple acquiring Beats, which makes me think it was all meant to happen in a row. I'm not sure. Um, but that was an interesting moment that where, because there was some, wasn't Beats acquired for like billions of dollars? Yes, yes, they were. They they really were, and and I feel like that's one that I don't really feel like you know there has been this explosive result of it. You know, Apple. You know, we all know about Apple. If Apple wanted to make higher end headphones, they could have done that. You know, they certainly had the technology and the capital and the expertise to be able to do that. They they must have seen something about the relationship with Beats, uh, you know, and there was and there were double wrap ups because it was Beats acquiring Mog, as well mm-hmm. as Topspin, and all these things got kind of wrapped up. And then, um, but as far as the headphones play, I felt like Beats really had its own brand, had its own identity, and that has that hasn't really, in my mind, gelled with um, with Apple as much as you would have imagined. I was convinced when I saw that, I was convinced that Apple was about to launch a type of smart headphone, um, you know, like a, a headphone that could operate separately from a phone and have your phone uh, integrated into your headphones so you wouldn't carry anything in your pocket. You just put it on your head. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it would read your, your email and you could you could talk to it and send email. and Exactly. Um, and and just like get rid of the phone completely. Instead, they you know years later they went after the the watch, which has been pretty successful with them as well. And the other piece about that was at that moment, Beats had launched Beats Music, so mm-hmm. it could be that Apple saw that as a potential threat. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, and, and that and the Beats Music was was the baseline for Apple Music subscription service, which was always something that in Steve Jobs' era was you know we're not going to do subscriptions. That's not that's not what we do. Um, they got they got into the streaming music marketplace. They got a big jump start because they got a great team at um, at Mog. They had at least a viable product, even if it even if it didn't end up being the you know the product that we see as Apple Music today. They got a really good jump start on it, and a lot of you know I I think a lot of people use a streaming service and they are you know they're convinced that they can build something better and. It, streaming services and almost all music applications are kind of like an iceberg. And the only part that you see is that's above the surface is the UI. And there's just a massive stack of complexity that's underneath the water. And so acquiring something that's functioning and that has um, caching and systems and subscriptions and currency conversions and all of these really deep things that you have to build into a streaming service, that's extremely valuable to be able to immediately port that into your systems and turn it on instead of building it from scratch. Yeah, it's interesting. I feel like there was a moment when we saw a lot of streaming services trying to launch and then some consolidation like Pandora buying RDO um, and... um, Oh, there was Songza when yes. Google acquired Songza. There, there's uh, there was a moment where it seemed like there were going to be a little more competition there, and it's kind of seems like it settled out. And to to speak to your point about what's going on beyond the sur- underneath the surfaces, now it feels like you're starting to see some. I don't want to call it backfill, but some industry uh, beneath the hood 
kinds of startups that are getting uh, created and then acquired. I I think about Spotify's acquisition of Louder as another Mm -hmm. one that's like, oh, well, here's a problem we haven't solved yet. Or Exactuals doing those micropayments, both in the um, Hollywood TV film industry and the music industry, first acquiring what was left of Dart when they were reorganizing, and then that getting acquired, Exactuals getting acquired by City National Bank. So there's some really interesting, like, B2B stuff happening that the consumers would never even see, but is kind of, I think, answering some of the stuff you're talking about that happens under the hood. Exactly, exactly. And I think that, um, you know, in, in in the music industry, it really wasn't until 2015 that any of the major stakeholders believed that on demand streaming was here to stay because 2015 was really a turning point when money started to come out of the back end of services and and the licensees were exceeding their minimum revenue guarantees. But by that time, you know, 2015 was the realization. 2016 was the year that everyone realized they don't have the infrastructure to manage the volume of data. Mm-hmm. And so that, that has sent just layers and layers of, of um, kind of ripple effects throughout the industry on PROs and labels and publishers, DSPs, and and you know while a lot of a lot of these traditional companies, they built infrastructure that was more more designed around you know twenty dollar transactions for a CD and not so much around billions of lines of of digital um, reports. You know, many others saw that as a huge opportunity and seeing like, okay, well, music industry may not be known for its, um, you know, highly efficient data management, but City National and, you know, the some of the companies that are coming in, you know, straight from the tech side, absolutely, they can, they can add expertise teams and exi- have existing products that, um, that you just Sometimes if you don't have it in your DNA to do certain things, you're much better off just acquiring. So we've talked about a wide variety of acquisitions in the music tech space. I'm curious about different patterns we see from certain types of entities, say major labels, what kind of acquisitions they're doing versus streaming services. We talked about PROs and at least one distributor. We haven't talked as much about ticketing companies, private equity companies. I'm just curious, are there any patterns that you see based on who the company is that's acquiring, the one that's buying. Um, what are they buying up? Is there any patterns emerging? Uh, we've talked a little bit now just about a lot of the streaming services starting to build in these other services. But what about what about major labels, for example? Um, are you seeing any patterns for what they're interested in kind of as an acquisition target? Yeah, well, it's, um, it, you know, I think we first started seeing a lot of patterns with major labels uh, acquiring uh distributors. And, mm-hmm. you know, on, on one hand, you would see, you know, Sony that has the orchard that owns the orchard outright. We have Warner that has ADA. And now this year, Universal bought the remainder of in-groups that they've had a, a longstanding partnership with. And, um, and I think, you know, all of those acquisitions are really interesting because they, they serve multiple purposes. In the one hand, um, when when market share deals are are struck uh, between licensees and licensors, having a really specialized high 
you know, high volume um, distributor underneath your hood. That's really helpful because then you're you're consolidating in the marketplace all the music that you control, um, even if you don't own the rights to that. Um, from a from a longer term view, I also see that we're seeing so many shifts in the way licenses are being granted between artists and songwriters and labels and publishers that many more artists are choosing to retain their rights and that doesn't necessarily mean that they're always leaving a major label sometimes they do but sometimes they go to an admin type of deal maybe they go to a different type of split same thing on the publishing side and so when you when you think about the future state of the industry and where the growth is um I can see a world in which there are many fewer traditional uh, deals that are being done within major labels and then a really wide mix of distributed catalogs, distributed artists, and, um, and a shorter list of artists who are signed in, in a traditional way. Uh, but I also see, have seen Warner Music has made a couple of acquisitions that are also, um, that are also clearly bolstering out their marketing. And, um, and so I think that the, you know, the, the major labels have often, you know, they've often been criticized as, you know, being these big lumbering giants, but I, I don't see it that way. I see them all really very strategically looking at where the business is going and how they can make sure to, to, um, to ensure their future stability by adding to what, what, is under their corporate entity. Well, and, and what I was going to say, it's, it's interesting that um, there's kind of this, it's almost like a battle for who's going to connect the pipeline from the major superstar artists through to the indie artist as well. Because mm-hmm. on the one hand, the way you described it, it's then made me think, well, the majors may be using that as an A&R funnel, right? They get a chance to see at the lowest levels of, um, of market impact, what artists are starting to just barely come out of the gate before somebody else snaps them up. So that's an opportunity there. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. In the deals that the streaming services are are doing too, with, with both Apple and Spotify making acquisitions around that you could see as maybe A&R or direct artist platforms and SoundCloud too, for that matter, making, doing a distribution, um, offering as well. Um, so it's interesting that for so long, the model has been about, we're going to find these artists, we're going to develop, and then we're going to push them through our channels of distribution and marketing at the highest levels to now saying, well, actually, we're really interested in everything. We just need to get it early enough and, and, and look at the earliest signals to see which ones are going to break out. Exactly, exactly. And the Apple P- Platoon acquisition, I think, is the, is a, a, a perfect illustration of this. And, you know, and as we're as we're seeing artists that are choosing to to drive more of their own destiny, it does open up, um, uh, you know, uh, an entirely different framework around you know, the artist is the one that's making a decision on who their teams are and how they want to release music and how they want to tour and what their sound is like. And, um, and that's exactly what Platoon was about. It, you know, it was, it was really designed around this new, more modern way of um, artists 
driving their own destiny and Apple snatched it up. Now, of course, Denzel has, has, <laughs> he's got a very long history with Apple, but, um, but there's, there's a lot of power in having your pulse out in the, in the A&R world that, that most of the DSPs are just, you know, they have enough on their plates. They're, they're generally not going to be experts at that as well. You know, um, before we move on to uh, the the next kind of topic within this, um, Vicky, I'm, I was interested that um, I think it's Nick Holmston at Spotify, and I mentioned this on the podcast before, was quoted in the Hollywood Reporter about a month ago talking about Daniel Eck having a vision of um, something like one million artists being listened to by one billion listeners. And it and the quote also included something about how when they increase the diversity of offerings, they get more engagement from listeners. And so mm. I'm also wondering if labels are also seeing that, kind of seeing that data signal and responding to that too, to say, well, it's not just about hits, it's about this variety and diversity that is more what moves the needle on a larger scale, especially when you're in a digital world where shelf space is not an issue. <laughs> There's no right. money locked up in physical product. It's like, well, let's put it all out. And it's not, a, you know, it doesn't matter. And it, which is, you know, kind of like the, the CD baby model where there's so many things there that it's, you know, it's structured in a way. So it, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't have to be hits. No, exactly. And I think that, um, you know, for many, many people like me and probably you that have been in the indie music church forever, um, you know, I think that we've, I think that we've known that, but what, what I'm also, I, I also, because I've been, been doing this for so long. Now I remember back to when I worked in radio and when you're in radio, you have a signal and you have a market and you have to focus, you have to segment the market and say, we want to go for the 18 to 34 year old educated urban, um, you know, consumer who has X, Y, and Z demographics. That segmentation is what I feel is really the next that's the next phase of what streaming services are because you you can't just have the five you know biggest capitalized most well capitalized companies in the world plus a few standalone services offer the identical catalog at an identical price and think that that's going to be enough to serve a wildly diverse music consumer fan base so you do have to differentiate. And where do you differentiate? You don't differentiate with the five or 10 artists that are at the top of the charts. You differentiate in the middle and with different sounds and people that are inspired and bringing, bringing more diverse music into the, into the mix. And, um, and, you know, we saw that win report that came out a few months ago, 39% market share for the indie sector. You know, that's because of streaming and that's because of playlisting and the low barrier to discovery. Yeah, it's it's great. As a music listener, for me, I have pretty eclectic taste. Um, uh, it's it's great for me because I feel like I have access to so much more music than than ever before. Um, um, you know, with, with the hits-driven commercial radio model, for example, or even music video model from the old days when I was growing up. Hey, I want to switch gears, Vicky. Um, it seems like a lot of music tech companies hope for an acquisition as their exit strategy. I'm curious from your perspective and your work with, with startups and, and music tech companies, do you think that's an okay mindset for startups? Well, 
I, I mean, yes and no. I think that I think that it's a it's a narrow focus. And if you say, "Wow, there are five companies that are struggling to manage data or mechanical rights or something that's highly specific," and you say, "We're going to build we're going to build a better mousetrap. We are going to build this. We're going to operate for." three years, get a minimum viable number of customers, and then sell. Um, I think that particular things like like data and you know very specific technologies, I think it can be um, an absolutely fine strategy. Um, if but I think if it's a if it's something that where you're you're trying to acquire customers and end consumers in music and you want to build a streaming service, you want to build something that has um, that has created some sort of resonance with with fan, music fans. I think you have to have a different view on that because you'll, you know, things don't always go as planned, and consumers oftentimes are very fickle. And if you just think you're going to build a service because you, you know, you want you want to sell it, and you don't want to worry about your business model, you don't want to worry about your cost structure or anything else. Um, you you have a really high risk of that not not going as planned, and you know we have a um, we have a really complex industry that is moving very quickly. All the parts are moving at all the same times, and I almost always advise companies to you know to to narrow their focus and really try to identify where there is a customer, where there's a group of customers that you can target, that you could reach, that you know how to communicate with, and that you could provide a service to them. And it's it's much better to really deliver something specific and then go on to build your business or go into an acquisition than to just try to launch something and and um, be beholden to either what your investors may have asked or what you think is a potential acquisition and you lose sight of the fast, cha- the fast changing marketplace and then you're left with nothing. You know, I, that's interesting. I, I, I think a lot of startups maybe don't know the answer of whether they should plan an exit related to acquisition or try to build a sustainable, profitable model over, over a longer term. Right. How do you think, um, when, when, when younger startups are coming to, cause, cause for, in both, they may be like, I'm fine with either one. It doesn't matter to me. I want to, I want to do something great and I'd like to get paid and it doesn't matter to me whether it gets acquired and I work for another great company or, um, I just build a lot of value and I start generating revenue that way, but it does impact strategy. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of how you're going to allocate whatever funds you have, what do you advise a startup if they're trying to decide it? Should I should I kind of like prepare this for more of an acquisition, or should I prepare this for the long haul? Yeah, well, I think I, it's hard to answer that, but you know, one it's of pretty the, vague. I kind of set it up <laughs> pretty. It depends on the what they're doing, right? <laughs> right, exactly. It really depends on what they're doing, and I think that. Um, you know the the process of creating a startup, seeking funding, getting your product market fit right, getting your product out, finding your customer base, then having revenues flowing. 
Um, that's a lot. It's a lot. And I think that, you know, in, in a, in a world right now where we have lots of huge companies and then, you know, a really robust startup environment, you know, the companies are also going to be looking at the team and in, in an acquisition, it's kind of the same with investment. It's so much of it is about the team. And, um, and yes, there are some cases where you just have a technology that someone wants, they're going to buy it. And that's, that's all it is, is just a pure tech play that you built something that fits precisely into a bigger company's um, product lineup. But most of the time it isn't. Most of the time it's really, you know, how, how, what is, you know, what is the underlying tech stack? What are, what are, what, how did they build out and, you know, how did they get this to fit the, the market? Is, is that product built to scale? A lot of times, I think companies that are that are trying to exit too quickly, they cut corners and they haven't really contemplated the the reality that if if your product really needs to scale, um, that's a whole different ball game than if you're building a product as a proof of concept and for a small, very niche um, customer base. And most of the companies that are going to put money in on a, an acquisition are going to want to see, see that there's scalability, that there's a team that has been able to understand the market and could add intelligence and be able to work with the acquiring company to integrate it into their environment or build something new. You know, a lot of companies, they just want to acquire a team that has a particular skill set and then they don't, you know, they throw away the tech and they rebuild everything themselves. So, um, so I think it, I think it, it's, it's kind of short-sighted for people not to think, not to think about, um, think about these other, the, these, these other nuances than just um, building, building a product or a platform and, and then making the rounds and hiring your banker to, to sell. Right. Yeah. Great. That's, that's super useful. Uh, let's widen it out a little bit. What do you see as the biggest challenges in music technology right now? Well, one of the things, you know, I'm working with a finance company called 23 Capital out of the UK. And so I'm, I'm, I'm getting a different purview of the market as a result of that. And, um, and one of the things that I'm seeing is that um, I, I can't, I can't, you know, emphasize enough that Spotify's listing and the ability for Spotify to be able to to retain value and retain Wall Street support despite some of the major stakeholders in Merlin, you know, selling their equity stakes, that really created confidence in music in the investor community. Um, but I think that it didn't necessarily create understanding. And, you know, in, in, in some traditional VCs eyes, they see there's only one Apple, there's only one Amazon, there's only one Facebook. Um, there's only going to be one music company. And, you know, they see the, they see the consumer facing side of it and they see a tremendous amount of value there. But a lot of the things, the problems that need to be solved and the the big opportunity around segmenting the market 
these require a much more nuanced understanding of of the music tech space. And I don't see that there's a lot of understanding of this. And I think there's a lot of really amazing startups out there that are struggling, that are really, really struggling to get the equity funding that they need. I don't really know what the answer to it is, except that, um, except that we need we need people who are uh, who are informed about the music tech space, who can help investors get a little bit more comfortable with music, and and you know the the history is definitely there that for years you know, invest, investors gave money to startups, startups gave all that money to labels for advances, and then the startups had nothing left and they failed. And we repeated that for a number of years. And that that memory is, is still quite vivid in a lot of investors' eyes. But I think some of the, you know, some of the funds, I've seen a handful of, of, of new ventures that are coming out, you know, certainly, um, tech stars for music and there's a handful of others that I think are um, that are that are taking a traditional venture funding um, approach but really applying it to the specificity of the music market and I think that is I think I think that is a really really important um, that's a really important piece of it because I think that there are a lot of companies that are that are just not fitting into the mold of what a traditional investor looks for, but they still are solving a problem um, in the music sector, but they, they just aren't, aren't able to bridge the gap. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting to think in terms of where we are developmentally as a marketplace for digital music versus where we were when all those acquisitions we were talking about, I mean, there's still acquisitions happening. I mean, we haven't even gone into the Spotify buying Gimlet or Liberty buying the rest of Pandora or Apple buying Shazam. There's a lot of big, but that doesn't help a lot of the smaller startups. I mean, I guess Gimlet was, is probably very startup-y in that they, they grew really quickly, but they also weren't exactly in music. (laughs) Um, which is interesting in itself. But but yeah, I mean, it seems like, yeah, there was a moment in time where people were taking those risks on smaller startups with great ideas. And and um, it is challenging now to figure out how do you, how do you bridge the gap from idea, um, proof of concept, and then to really get, get scalable. So... Yeah, and we and and we don't have very many companies that are making music available to consumers now. You know, there's been so much consolidation that um, that you know, ten years ago, there were so many startups oper- operating under the DMCA and others that were coming out with new models. And now, now music is really in the hands. A full catalog of music is really in the hands of a handful of companies. I want them all to succeed, especially the standalone services like SoundCloud and Spotify. And I still would consider Pandora to be um, different than being just part of Apple, um, Amazon, and Google, simply because I feel like we need the diversity and we need people who are who are as focused on music as as possible. Um, but the the market is consolidated, so there really aren't that many there really aren't that many cons- opportunities in the consumer facing world right now. But I think as we as we look at the future, I think segmentation there will be. I think there's a lot of problems that still need to be solved, and startups are very poised to do 
um, work around all the rights and the, the, the data issues that we have and analytics and, um, you know, and then the artists that are going off on their own, there's a really compelling mix of companies out there that are hybrids of management companies, artist development platforms and media companies. And, um, and that's an also a really exciting space. Well, yeah, there's, there's, there's uh, so many interesting things that are evolving with those kind of hybrids and, and evolutions that wouldn't have existed in a, a previous moment. So I want to wrap up by asking you um, now at the micro scale, you're in LA, what's the, what's the LA music tech scene doing these days? Yeah, well, LA is, um, LA is really, is really growing in its, in its technology presence. And it's, um, it's an exciting time because, you know, this, this city used to be so dominated by Hollywood and by, you know, this, the, you know, recordings of, of major artists. There's always been a scene here that's really focused on the, the art. Um, but now technology is moving in and, it's not just, you know, we had the Silicon Beach, which was um, a lot of things out in Santa Monica that were um, that were just, you know, they were just a, kind of the early stages of startups. But now we're getting a whole ecosystem here where we have um, we have investors, we have content creators, we have technologists, companies that tried to even operate in San Francisco and couldn't hire, you know, there's not enough engineers to hire or at a, at a, at a rate that would, that was affordable. Um, they found it, you know, kind of a different mix here. And what's also really nice is that there's a, because of the history and the legacy in Los Angeles of the, the art and the creators behind it, there's there's a slightly different mindset. It's it's not just about, especially from the investment standpoint, it's not just about scale and your SaaS model and you know the the more hardcore technology. There's there's a greater understanding in this city around the value of connecting with consumers, the 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 art and the content first, and the technologies that support it. And, um, and it's changing, it's changing the landscape and it's super exciting because I, I feel like technology is a lot like music where you, it, it tends to thrive in hubs and technologists and tech startups want to be around other tech startups. And, um, and we're seeing a lot of that popping up here as well as other, other areas around the country. And, um, and I think that the more that we have the creators in mind in a, in a technology, in a music tech play, uh, the better off we are because sooner or later you, you realize that there's this sprawling creative process that, is, um, that, that needs to have a life of its own, but the technology that can enable it and trans, transport that out to consumers um, there's a really, really great combination there. And I think LA is just developing, is developing a music tech scene that has, um, incredible diversity and a really, a really well-earned focus on the creative side of it. 
it's really cool to hear you describe it almost in cultural terms uh, that there's the, there's kind of an, an ambiance, a sensibility that's related to LA's history that's emerging as tech and music kind of uh, coalesce there. Yeah, 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 exactly. And um, and I think, you know, I think that as we're also seeing companies like um, Warner Music and Spotify and others going downtown LA and the Arts District, yeah, that's also transforming. That's that's transforming this city as well, because we've never this Los Angeles doesn't really have a city center. You know, we have lots of villages that are connected by a massive freeway system, and um, and so we've got we've we've got hubs starting in Santa Monica and now downtown LA, and um, and Hollywood, and then all the traditional players are mixed in there and. Um, and it feels to me like a like the city is is transforming um, at a really rapid pace, and it makes me feel great to see companies again like Spotify and Warner Music that are investing in going downtown and providing a baseline for uh, for a new hub in in LA. Yeah, and uh, obviously all the major labels have a presence in the LA area. Um, and mm-hmm. Google and YouTube um, have creator space there. Um, Apple Music exactly. is opening up something there. So, yeah, it's it's interesting to see. So, Vicky, this has been really great. How can people uh, stay in touch with you, um, find out what you're up to? Are you a, a Twitter person, a LinkedIn person, you, or something else? Yes, you know, I, I, um, I'm definitely on all social media. I would say that I'm probably a very poor user of Twitter, um, but, um, but I'm not hard to find. I'm on LinkedIn. I speak at a lot of industry events, um, and there's a contact form on my on my website on my Cross Border Works website that anybody can send me a note and get in touch. and um, And I'm always open to hearing new ideas. I, I'm very bullish about about the future of music and think it's a super exciting time. So, um, so I always I always love hearing people that are that are coming up with the next big thing and um, and don't want to you know don't want to um, hinder anyone from getting in contact with me because that's um, that's part of the that's part of the cycle of of just staying on top of the startups and um, and people that are that are. Uh, that are hungry for, for the future of music like I am. And you know what? I've followed you at events and online forums and, and some pieces you've written. And I think you, you emit a very generous uh, and uh, supportive and positive uh, approach to um, the music tech scene. So I appreciate you being out there. I appreciate you taking the time to be on the podcast. Thanks so much for joining me, Vicki. Well, thank you. This has been really great. And, um, and yeah, there's it. It spurred it spurred me to think more about all the acquisitions, and there are so many that we can't we can't even get to. But um, but thanks, and I, I really appreciate the thoughtful discussion. Great. Likewise, I appreciate it too. Thank you all for listening to Music Tectonics. You can stay apprised of what we're up to at musictectonics.com. Sign up to our newsletter and also uh, please subscribe to Music Tectonics and spread the word about the, the podcast. We're still relatively new and would love to engage with you online as well. We're on Twitter as well and uh, keep listening. Thanks so much. You're listening to Music Tectonics.